Thank you, worship team. Would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6? Luke chapter 6. And we invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church if they'd like to. Which you can find through the door over here by the piano. Luke chapter 6. Today we're studying verses 46 to 49. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1021. And today we come to the conclusion of Luke chapter 6, which is the end of a sermon preached by Jesus. We've been studying this sermon for the last four weeks or so, and today Jesus wraps it up and brings his sermon home to a fine point. Let me just read the text, Luke 6, 46 to 49. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us, and that you love us so much that you went to the extravagant length of sacrificing yourself so that we might be saved. We thank you for what you've given to us. We thank you that you continue to give. Thank you for this church and for this people. Lord, we thank you now for your word as we pay attention to it. And Lord, we thank you that you are the living God who speaks, that we don't have to um, meditate or read the tea leaves or try to study the stars like astrologers to figure out what you would have us do. But Lord, you've spoken. You've given it to us in your word. And Lord, your word has even come to us and been translated to us in English in so many different Bibles that we can go to the store and pick up. Lord, we thank you that you have reached out to us and have saturated us with, your, with opportunities to read your word. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness for our unattentiveness to your word, for the way we read it and forget what we read, for the way we hear but don't do. And so Lord, as we read now, uh, we, we see you want us to pay attention, not just to hear but to do. And so Lord, be changing our hearts even as we study your word. We're excited to hear what you're going to say to us now, Lord. And we pray that as we study these words that you would speak to your people, that whatever I say that is not of you would just be forgotten and erased. And Lord, what you want to say to your flock would endure. And so Lord, be with us now as we study your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, my wife is a real saint for the way she puts up with my, uh, let's say, idiosyncrasies, of which there are many. Uh, one of them being is my incredible ability to forget what she told me within seconds of her telling me. It's a gift, really, that I have. Um, so, you know, she'll call me on the phone here at church and she'll say, Jeremy, could you please bring home one of our kids' coats because they left it in the education wing on Sunday. Could you just bring that home with you? And I'll say, yeah, I got it. Sure thing. Now, you're not going to forget, are you? Oh, come on, I'm not going to forget. I mean, look, it's me. I got it. I got it. It's good. I'll take care of it. And then she'll say, all right, listen, I'm about to hang up the phone. And when I hang up, I want you to immediately stand up 
and walk to the education wing. You know, this will be the signal. When you hear the phone click, get up and go. Okay, so, you know, she hangs up the phone, and instantly I get hit with, like, a stupid ray or something. Go back to typing, and I, I forget. Or sometimes I stand up, and I actually do stand up, and I walk out of my office, and I go down the hallway, and then, I don't know, I just kind of get distracted. I mean, I, usually I'm walking by the church kitchen. I'm like, eh, I wonder if it's in the fridge. And I'll uh, <laughs> see if there's any leftovers, and I'll talk to somebody, and, you know, and then, then the next thing I know, I'm back in my office, you know, typing. And, and I forget the whole day until I actually get home, and, and I'm walking in the door, and that's when I'm like, the coat. I forgot the coat. And I walk in like, hi. She's like, hi. Coat? I forgot the coat. And usually she's very gracious and understanding and patient. Sometimes she kicks it up a notch, which I deserve. And, uh, and she'll say, I don't think you really listen to me. And I'll say, of course I listen to you, honey. And then she'll say, so where is the coat then? And I really haven't come up with a good comeback at that point in the conversation. So if you can help me with that and think of some line I can use. I, I've tried different lines and they don't really work. She, uh, she wants me to not just listen, but to do. To show that I'm listening by acting. And that's exactly what Christ is talking about in this simple little passage. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You know, you talk, you talk, la, la, la. You come to church, you sing the songs, la, la, la. But why aren't you doing it? Where is the action? That's what Christ is looking for. He's uh, given us this whole sermon on discipleship. If you've been here the last month, we've been studying about what it means to really be a disciple of Jesus. What does it look like to live as a biblical Christian? And to put that into practice. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God... How is that fleshed out in everyday life? And so Jesus has given this long sermon. And for those of you who maybe weren't here, maybe you've forgotten, let's, let's just do the really quick couple-minute, 30,000-foot overview of this sermon in Luke chapter 6. Uh, it starts in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, and there are four main movements to the sermon. The first is verses 20 to 26, often called the Beatitudes. And in that part of the sermon, Jesus calls his disciples to have a radical viewpoint, to look at this world in a completely upside-down way than the world looks at this world. And so I'm supposed to look at riches differently than the world does. The world says riches is what it's about. Money is, is what makes the world go around. And Jesus says, no. Riches are so insignificant compared to the riches of the kingdom of God and knowing Christ. And so Jesus, in, in that first section, systematically flips everything. And the world says food and happiness is what it's about. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's satisfaction in, in me, in Christ. And, and so he, look at verses 20 to 22, just to give a sense of it. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor. You're blessed if you're poor? What? That's ridiculous. He says, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. So he calls us to a radical viewpoint in which we assess this world by a completely different metric than the world does. Where we look at this world as passing away and we look at Christ as the only thing that lasts. And then in the second movement of the sermon, verses 27 to 36, he calls us to a radical love, a love for our enemies. Verse 27, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. That is radical. To live that way, to really turn the other cheek and to give to those who hate us, this is not how the world turns. And yet Jesus wants us to live in a completely countercultural way. And then the third movement. He's told, told us about a radical viewpoint, a radical love. In verses 37 to 42, there's a call to radical humility. To uh, flee from a judgmental attitude that's always looking down our moral nose at everyone else and self-righteous arrogance and saying, oh, you know, look at that guy, look at that guy. But instead to look at yourself and to be willing to let God uh, purge and examine your own heart. And so I'm first taking that big you know, plank out of my eye before I come to you and start trying to take the speck out of your eye. And then finally, we looked at radical transformation last Sunday, if you were here, verses 43 to 45, that being a Christian is ultimately about having a changed heart, being born again, that produces a changed life. That the mark of being a genuine Christian is transformation. It's not necessarily having the fish bumper sticker on your car, which is not wrong to have, but that's not how we mark ourselves as Christians. It's through a transformed life. So anyway, that's the sermon. And he winds it up the way my wife did on the phone. <laughs> Are you going to do it now? Or is it just all talk? Verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As Jesus delivered this sermon, we found out in verses 17 to 20 earlier, that he's surrounded by a multitude. There's thousands of people pressing in on him. People want to touch him. They want to get close to him. They want to see him and hear him. And they're saying, oh, Master, Rabbi, Teacher, Lord, Lord. And he pushes back and he says, well, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say? And so it comes down to walking the walk, not just talking the talk, or a, to adapt a line from the famous intellect uh, Forrest Gump, who said, you know, stupid is as stupid does. We could say a disciple is as a disciple does. That true discipleship is shown in the way we live our lives. <clears throat> and really, I think that's what this text is about. It's about lordship, the lordship of Jesus. Who is really the Lord? That's what he's challenging us. And if we say he's the Lord, do we live his lordship or is it just all talk? And that's the hard thing is really having him as Lord. Lord, Lord, who is in control? Who's in charge? And this idea of lordship is kind of foreign to us as Americans because we don't really have lords. You know, we, we live in a democracy. We elect people. And if we don't like him, we can unelect them. And so there's not really anyone in America who's the Lord who walks into a room and we all say, Lord, yes. Whatever you say, yeah, you want me to go over there? I'll go over there, fine. Whatever. You're the Lord. And we don't really have that as part of the fabric of our society. And so this idea of Jesus being Lord is so foreign to us. But that's what it comes down to. To be a disciple means to surrender oneself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to let Him have sovereign sway over the totality of my existence. Because in reality, there are only two kingdoms, only two kingdoms from which we can choose in this world. There's the kingdom of God, and then there's the kingdom of darkness. And in the kingdom of God, Jesus is Lord. And that's what it means to be in the kingdom of God, is to surrender myself to his lordship and to live out his word uh, practically every day. But in the kingdom of darkness, there's a different lord, and his name is me. 
whoever me is. It's, I am Lord of my own life, and no one's going to tell me what to do. No one's going to tell me what to believe. No one's going to infringe upon my personal freedom, my personal expression. And I'm going to believe what I want, and I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and make up my own belief system, my own morality. And, and so that's the kingdom of darkness. It's the same line that Satan gave Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when he said, hey, look, if you eat this fruit, you can be like God. You can have dominion. You can be the Lord. And so we all bought into it. That's the essence of sin. And as a result, we live in the kingdom of darkness. But Jesus beckons us out of darkness, back into the light. And he says, come into the kingdom of God where I am Lord. And it sounds confining at first, but that's where real freedom is. It's sin that's confining. Christ brings freedom and life. And so we need to surrender to him. That's what I think this text is all about. Giving up our lives to do what he says. I uh, heard this great illustration. You may have heard it before. As, uh, it comes from Haiti. It's from a Haitian pastor who gave it just a uh, memorable illustration about what it looks like to surrender your life completely to Christ. He tells the story of a man who was selling a house. And another man came along and said, I'd like to buy your house from you, but I can only pay half price. Like, I can't afford what you're asking for. It. And the guy said, well, you know, forget it. I'm not going to sell you my house. And the man pleaded with him, please, you know, I, my family really needs this house. Would you sell it to me for half price? And finally the man said, okay, fine, you can have the house. I'll sell it to you except for one thing I want to keep for myself. See this nail right here by the door? That nail is now mine. I want this nail. And you can't take it out, you can't touch it, and I will uh, hang it. I mean, I can hang anything I want from this nail, and you can't mess with it because this is my nail. And the guy said, oh, okay, fine, whatever. So he moves into the house, and the transaction is made. And as the story goes, sometime later, the original owner comes back and says, you know, I'd like to really buy that house back from you. I, I don't want you to have the house. And the guy said, well, it's not for sale. I mean, you sold it. And, and he said, please, let me buy the house back. No, I don't want you to. So here's what the man did. He goes out and he found a dog that had died and tied a rope around it and hung it from the nail. And as the dog decomposed, it ruined the house because who could live there? And finally the man just had to move out and sell the house. And the Haitian pastor said, that's a picture of what it's like if we have areas of our life that are unsurrendered to Christ, it's just a nail that Satan can hang something from. And so we're like, Jesus, you can have my whole life. It's all yours, except for this, you know, relationship over here. And, you know, this guy I'm dating or this gal, you know, I know they don't know you and I don't know they don't believe in you, but, you know, I, I need a little something for me because it's hard. Like, okay, that's just a hook that Satan's going to hang a dog on. Or, or we say, Lord, you know it's all yours, I love you, my money's yours, except, you know, I got that nice inheritance from, you know, when Grandma passed away, and I, you know, I, this is something for me. I need some money for me, and I'm going to do this with it, or I'm going to do this with my time, or whatever it is, we always have little hooks that we keep to ourselves, and that's the exact place where our enemy can come in and leverage it against us if we're not surrendered to him. And so I find that the Christian life is about a, daily process of surrendering to Jesus, sometimes a multiple times during the day process, where, where I'm constantly going around going, there's another nail, and I'm taking the nail, and yanking it out, and I go around, and I find another nail, and i got to yank that one out, and then in my weak moments, I take a nail, and I you know, put it back in, this is mine, and then something bad happens, and i got to yank that one out. And so being a Christian is about uh, following Christ and surrendering to Him. We surrender to Him as Christians, and yet there's, a, in some sense, a daily process of re-surrendering to his lordship. And that's what it means to be a Christian, is to say to Jesus, you are the Lord. Do as you will with my life. 
And then to drive the point home so that we understand why it's so important to surrender to his lordship, Jesus tells us the parable of the two builders, which we read earlier. Very simple parable to understand, verses 47 to 49. And in that parable, uh, the two builders represent two responses to the teaching of Jesus. Uh, The first response is in verse 47. He says, I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. The guy who actually says, Lord, Lord, and lives out, Lord, Lord. Verse 48, he's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. It's such a great picture here of stability. Uh, that if you listen to Jesus' words and do what he says and really make him Lord of your life, it's like building your life on a solid rock. Uh, this summer I had an addition put on my house and uh, we took our garage and put a little more square footage off the back to make a mud room and then we also went up and over with a bedroom. And uh, what's one of the first things the guys did when they built the house? They put in the foundation. And so I, I don't know anything about building. It was great to kind of watch the whole process and just be amazed at building but anyway, they brought over this mini excavator, and me and my kids would sit out back and you know watch the excavator at work, and and they're you know dig and uh, just power huge power tool in my backyard digging out the hole, and you think it's deep enough, and it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper, so far down. Then you know you jump down in this thing, it's like a foxhole. It's this huge pit in your yard, and then they bring in the concrete and they pour the footing, and put reinforced bars in there, and then they put the forms up and lay the foundation. So there's this huge cement wall that goes way down in the ground on top of the cement footing. Then they pack all the dirt in. And then in the end, you know, all that's sticking up is like this much of a foundation. But you know that it goes deep and that it's solid and that it's not going to move. And then on top of that cement foundation, they take that first two-by-four and put it down. And that's the beginning of your house. And Jesus says, that's what it's like if you listen to what I say and do it. It's like building on a good foundation that we all know that we have to do. You put that down, that board down, you know it's going to be solid if you love me and surrender to me and live the way that I'm telling you a disciple should live. <clears throat> and what's ironic, of course, is that I think a lot of times the world portrays or views Christianity as an approach of weakness. That to be a Christian is to be weak. That to be a Christian is to be a pushover. You're going to love your enemies, really. You're going to do that here in this world? (laughs) You're going to be a doormat. And so some people see Christianity as kind of a crutch. It's a a path of um, timidity and powerlessness. But Jesus says, no, this is the way of real stability and strength, is to follow me. Your life will be built on the rock, on a nice cement foundation. And then we got the other guy, verse 49. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. So here's the guy who says, Wow, Jesus, that was a great sermon. Oh, I love that sermon. Well, you know, when you told that illustration about the tree and the fruit, I mean, I felt something. I, I felt, I, I had a pang. You know, it, it, something happened in my heart. And, and I felt something, and I really appreciated that, and I almost cried. I mean, it was really great, Jesus. Okay, so you're going to do it? Well, I mean, you know... Take our time here. I mean, it's going to use some common sense. I mean, you, you can't take the Bible literally. You can't take God's Word literally. I mean, you've got to you know, use your brain. You've got to pick and choose and figure out what parts you're going to choose and what parts you're not going to choose. Because, you know, if you just take it and try to live it, I mean, you become like a religious fanatic and no one wants to be a fanatic. Right? It, and Jesus says, if that's the approach to my Word, it's like a guy who goes and builds the house but doesn't put a foundation in. Imagine if my contractor had just 
gone out with a shovel and cleared out a little space in the dirt right beside my garage and put the two-by-four right on the dirt. And I'd come out and said, what are you doing? Aren't you supposed to put a foundation in there? I'm not a builder, but, you know, I look at the blueprint here, the architecture, and I think that's a cement wall that goes down like four feet. I mean, isn't there supposed to be something there? And imagine if my builder said to me, you know, you can't take those blueprints too literally. I mean, you know, you don't want to be over-scrupulous. You've got to use some common sense. You've got to, it's very expensive. I mean, you could do it that way. But, you know, if you did everything in the blueprint, I mean, you'd be like a, a construction you know, fanatic, right? I mean, you don't want to be a construction fanatic. So, you know, just put a little thing here, and I'll skip that, and, you know, it's going to pick and choose. It's okay. You can sort of be a cafeteria builder. You can be a cafeteria Christian. Oh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And Jesus says, that's like building a foundation right on the dirt. And maybe you could get the house to stand up like that, but it would just take a matter of months, a year, before the whole thing would start to buckle and fold and bend and break under the weight of it. The reality is that we all build our lives on something. Every one of us in the life we're living is grounded on some philosophy, some idea, some goal, some motivation, some picture of what life is supposed to be like. And we've all built our lives up on it in, in some way. Um, maybe the foundation is money. I mean, that's sort of a common American foundation. You know, life's about making money and my security is in money and my identity is in my uh, paycheck and it, it's earning money and buying things and getting possessions and that's where happiness and joy and purpose is found. And that's you know, one kind of foundation that people build. Sometimes the foundation is pleasure, um, making myself feel good. Sometimes it's control. Some of us it's about controlling others and our circumstances and doing anything in our power to control and be on top of things. And that's the foundation on which we find our security and purpose and identity and so on and so forth. Some of us, it's kind of the suburban dream. I mean, there's this suburban model that's out there that, that's just sort of sitting there waiting for anyone to adopt. And it's kind of like, you know, the purpose of life is to raise your kids in a safe, clean environment where they're healthy and they go to a good college so they can get a nice job and go to a nice, safe, clean place themselves. And then you can have them near you and then you can eventually play golf and die on the golf course or something like that. And, and it's this sort of, you know, track. And it's nothing wrong with going to a good school or college. But, but, you know, is that what life is really about? Is that the foundation on which I'm making decisions and structuring my existence? Or is it based on the foundation of Christ and His Word? You know, what, if, what if God were to call one of my children to serve Him somewhere? My child would say, you know, uh, Dad, I really feel like God is calling me to find a way to go to Afghanistan and, and preach the word. I would say, whoa, 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 you know, time out. I mean, let's not be too serious about this following Christ business. What, what if? Is my life really about Christ and his gospel? Am I really that into Christ? Or, or am I really building on the foundation of this world? And our foundations will be tested in times of trial. Uh, floods will happen. Floods happen. That's what happens in this life. And when the flood comes, it will test the quality of our foundation. That's the end of the parable here, as you can see. The uh, flood comes in a moment. When the flood comes, you don't have time to think. You don't have time to react. You don't have time to rebuild or buttress. It's just it, that's the moment of crisis. We're put into the crucible. These crises come. And our house either stands or falls. That's it. So Jesus says at the end of verse 48 of the first guy, when a flood came, the torrent 
struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. And then at the end of verse 49, the moment the tor- torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. And so we're going to have crises in life. They, they happen all the time to people. You've been through some, perhaps. Uh, there's financial crises where a deal falls through or some you know, idea you had for a business kind of goes kaput and all the money you put into it is lost. Or you get laid off from a job and you're out of work for a, a month and then you're out of work for three months and then at six months and then after a year, you're really, really desperate. And, you know, if you've been out of work for a year, I don't care what your religion is. I don't care if you're a Christian or Buddhist or atheist. I mean, it is excruciating. It, it destroys your self-confidence. It, it eats away at your hope. Your finances are dwindling. You're eating into your savings. You're mortgaging your house. And you just start freaking out. It's just normal to be worried about finances that way. But if your foundation is built on Christ, and you know that following Christ and glorifying Him is what your life is about, and during the times of plenty, we've learned to stop worshiping at the altars of materialism and consumerism, And we've learned to live out what Jesus said in chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And we believe it and we've lived it. Then when those economic crises and floods come into our lives, so to speak, you know, we will endure. Will it be hard? Yes. Is it challenging and draining? Yes. But that's not what my life is about. My life's not about my bank account. But if it is, and I have for some reason indexed my personal worth to my net worth, and that's where I look for my hope and security, Brother, when the crisis comes, your house will collapse. And you know your relationships will buckle and your health and your mental health will buckle because you haven't built on the rock. Or sometimes the crisis comes into our life and it's a relational crisis. And I, I think now of Jesus' words about loving your enemies, how difficult that is. And, and these crises come. You know, Maybe you, you get a teacher at school who's a new science teacher and for some reason this science teacher has targeted you and just doesn't like you, and you don't get along with them, and that happens sometimes in schools. Uh, Maybe you have a supervisor at work who literally is Satan. I mean, that's possible. I know some of you do. You work for somebody who you could swear is the devil, and you think you saw 666 on their neck, but you're not quite sure. Now, what do you do when someone's like that, and you have to wear a hazmat suit to work because of all the toxic waste that just gets hurled at you? Uh, or, Or what do you do when it's your marriage, and... You know, five years ago, everything seemed fine, and now it's like five years later, and you're not exactly sure how you got there, but you're talking about divorce, and it's becoming very hostile. You're not, you can't even put it together, what happened. I mean, you got some of the pieces, but it's so confusing. And you find yourself in an incredibly painful, conflicted situation, which happens. And the thing about those kind of situations, they're so confusing. They're so difficult to see your way out. When you're at odds with people and it's all around you, it feels like a sandstorm. You can't figure out which end is up. And it's at those times that we need to have our foundation on Christ, that we need to respond almost instinctively by loving our enemies and by taking the plank out of our own eye. And here's the deal. In the moment of crisis, you can't very easily choose to do that. When the war is happening, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to be loving. Here I go. Mm. That's not how it works. The way you'd be loving is if you've practiced a loving lifestyle up to that point. You know, it's like soldiers. You talk to soldiers. Boy, when you're under fire, how do you stay calm? How do you do what you have to do? And they say, well, it's the training. You train, you drill, you drill. And then when you're in fire, under fire, the training just kicks in. And you know how to, to act even in a hectic situation. And that's how it is. When you're in a, a really conflicted situation, if you've adopted a lifestyle of love and mercy and grace... 
that'll kick in to a degree. And you'll know to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you because that's who you are. You've built up a life on the foundation of God's Word. And I'll tell you what, people, in really bad conflict situations, you can't control the outcome, but you can control this one thing, whether or not you glorify God with how you respond to your opponents. And that's the one thing that God is looking for from us, is to glorify Him. But perhaps you live a charmed life, and you don't really go through any major upheavals, and you have a long marriage, and you're financially stable, and you do actually die on the green uh, under the sunshine. That's where you drop dead, and it was sort of a happy memory, and it really ends, you know, really beautifully for you. You know, in the end, we all have to face the final great flood, which is the flood of God's judgment. Our God who made this world, who gave us everything that we have, who blesses us, that same God is also a God of holiness and justice. And there will come a day when He says, enough, enough. And every day He puts up with us and every day He reaches out to us and we continue to spurn Him. We continue to pretend like we're God, like it's, we're the ones in control. And day after day He reaches forth mercy and day after day we give Him the stiff arm. And it goes on and on. And, and God is so patient. He's been putting up with it for so long. His hands of mercy are like levees and dams that are holding back the reservoir of His wrath. But there's going to come a day when he finally says, enough, enough. And his hands will be removed and his judgment will burst forth on this world. And on that day, only the things built on Jesus and His Word will stand. Everything else will be shaken and flattened. There's a powerful passage in the book of Revelation that describes the judgment day. And I'd like you to look there. It's Revelation chapter 6. It's on page 1219. It's the last book of the Bible. Revelation 6. Page 1219. And we'll look at verses 12 to 17. And here in Revelation 6, 12 to 17, what we have is a snapshot, a little vision of the final judgment. What will it be like at the end? How will the world end? And here we have a shocking picture. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. And the Apostle John tells us, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is a picture of cosmic dissolution. This is everything that we think of as permanent. The stars, the sun, the sky, the mountains. Everything that we think of as immovable is shaken to its foundations. It's poetic imagery to describe the, the cosmic dissolution that will take place at the coming of Christ. And on that day, what can stand up against Him? What will stand? Verse 15, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free, in other words, everybody, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the 
face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Isn't that a funny juxtaposition? The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? What will stand against that flood? Will we be able to hide ourselves by going into our you know, home theaters and pulling the shades and cranking up the Dolby really loud? I mean, will that block it out? We'll be able to go into our BMWs and roll up the windows and be safe. Who can stand? Where will be the protection? And only that which is built on Christ and on His Word will endure the great shaking that's coming. And on that day when Jesus comes, all people living and dead will fall before Him. We'll be prostrate with our faces in the dirt. And all humanity will cry out, Lord, Lord, toward Jesus Christ. And to some who have built their lives on this world, He will say, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And you never did what I said. And you never believed in me. And to others who have built their lives on the foundation of Christ and His Word, they will cry out, Lord, Lord. And He will place His hand upon them. And He will say, well done, Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy I've prepared for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship You this morning because You are the rock. You are the precious cornerstone that God has laid in Zion. You are the, the foundation of the the new temple of which we are a part. We thank You, Jesus, that You are ours and that we are Yours. And Lord God, we want to build our lives on the foundation of Your Word. We want to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus. Forgive us for our double-heartedness. Forgive us for our ability to, to say one thing and do another. I pray, Lord, that as Your followers, You would bring a deeper consistency by Your grace because You must change our hearts. Lord, we pray that if there are any nails sticking out of our lives as Christians, that You would pinpoint those and yank them out before the devil uses those things against us to trip us up in our walk with you. And Lord, I pray that everyone here would be built on Christ, that no one would leave with the foundation built on the dirt of this world, which will be swept away. Lord, I pray that we would see the beauty of Jesus, that we would see the desirability, the, uh, the glory of Jesus, and that we would desire to know Him and follow Him, that You would show our hearts how good and pleasant and joyful it is to follow Christ, and that we would run to Him because He is great. And so, Lord, I pray, build our lives on the rock. Give us a clear vision of the end. Help us always to remember that this world will come to an end, that our lives are short, and help us to live, Lord, in significance of that. And so, Lord, I pray, be with us. Help us to build our lives on the rock, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I have a closing hymn from the hymnal. It's hymn number 526. Hymn 526. And uh, we'll just sing it a cappella. This is a really triumphant song, so here's the thing. You've got to keep the tempo up, people, all right?